And it wasn't until I wrote the entire story and got it off my chest to the world that I was really able to heal. And that's why I wrote that book, because I've gotten thousands and thousands of letters. I correspond with people, emails, and I just got one today. This dude on Twitter was like, your book helped save my life practically by your example. And example's better than precept. We have to live. Everyone talks the talk. Who's walking the walk? That's who I look to. I'm looking to see how are people living their lives, and that's the example and that's what I try to do too is lead a positive life and show people you know no matter what you can climb out of any hole you know no matter how far in the depths of hell you are and I've been down there but I was willing to like climb out of that and surround myself by positive people that's the other thing is the association we keep that's the one and only John Joseph and this is the Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What is happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the podcast, the show where each week I sit down and convene long form with the best and the brightest, the most interesting change makers and paradigm breaking minds and personalities across all categories of health, fitness, diet, nutrition, sports, entertainment, business, spirituality, and so much more. I've got one goal in mind. That is to help you self-actualize, to help you manifest your best, most authentic self. And today I got a great show for you today. I sit down once again with my main man, John Joseph. He is a podcast favorite and a provocateur at large. And this is a really amazing exchange that uh, is sure to incite, uh, provoke, educate, and inspire you. And I got all kinds of things I want to say about John prior to launching into this conversation. But first, let's do a little housekeeping. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology, technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. 
I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay. 
we did it. Thanks for sticking with me. John Joseph. If you're a longtime listener of this show, then my man, Johnny Bloodclot, needs no introduction. He's really one of my most popular guests to date. And I think he's been on the podcast more than any other guest. He's been on four previous times, episode 41, 66, 223, and he also appeared with uh, Mishka Shubali in episode 95. If you're new to the show, I urge you to check out his first appearance on the podcast. It's one of my most powerful uh, episodes that I've ever published, RRP 41, a really beautiful documentation of an extraordinary life. And we kind of pick it up today with a little bit more about his life. If you're new to the show, for the uninitiated, John is a true American original. He is a New York hardcore punk icon and the frontman for the legendary and influential punk band, The Cro-Mags. A survivor of the rough streets of New York's Lower East Side in the 1970s, this is a guy whose youth was marked by unbelievable abuse, foster care, drugs, crime, incarceration. And John is a guy who has endured and overcome all of this, obstacles most of us really just can't even imagine. His salvation began with finding solace in the New York hardcore punk scene. He was taken in by the Bad Brains, one of the most influential bands of that era. And that's a journey that birthed the Cro-Mags, which also became one of the era's most iconic and influential hardcore punk bands, and later led to a life in a Hare Krishna monastery where he found his spiritual salvation and developed a lifelong love of meditation, yoga, the vegan lifestyle, racing Ironman triathlons, and most importantly, his profound devotion to service, all of which falls under this umbrella that John calls PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. Uh, John's got a new band. It's called Blood Clot and a new album that comes out July 14th. And he also just released a second edition printing of his memoir, Evolution of a Crow Magnet. It's an unbelievable book. So please pick that up. And in case you missed it, he's also the author of a book called Meat is for Pussies. It's a fun, uh, easy read intended to introduce the principles of living a plant-based lifestyle to the average everyman. And I'm really proud to have contributed the foreword to that book. Uh, I'll put links to all of these products in the show notes of this episode on the episode page. In any event, I love this guy. If John is anything, he is no BS. This is a guy who walks his talk and I just adore him. I love him and I love my conversations with him. And just when I think we've covered everything, we've covered it all, I discover these new layers to explore with him. And this conversation definitely does not disappoint. It brims over with mind-blowing stories about his life. Uh, I had never previously heard him tell. So even if you have listened to all those other episodes, those four other episodes with him, you're going to be uh, delighted at some of the new stories he tells today. And like I said at the outset, this episode is certain to incite and educate uh, and provoke and definitely inspire you. And I think that's all I'm going to say. So let's let JJ say the rest. We're recording. We're live. JJ Whoa. in the house. And Rich Wolves. Freaking. Uh, in the container. The container. The container studio. This is your wow. fourth or fifth time on the podcast. Uh, I think it's the fourth it four? time. Third, three times. Well, you did we one. Did remember, we did, we did, did it with, with Mishka. Mishka so That's this right. This would be maybe five. I think this is number five. Yeah, yeah. And the first time in Los Angeles, though. No, first time and was in New York. Right, oh, I'm saying yeah, this well, is the first time that we've done yeah, it in L.A. Time. And the last time that we did it, it was still like a year and a half ago, I yeah. think. So it's been a little, it's been a minute. 
right? right so right. welcome to LA. Wow. And I had the uh, pleasure of going to your book event. Uh, you're on the precipice of releasing the new edition of Evolution right. of the Cro-Magnon. And you did a reading the other night. Super awesome, man. And, and that was the first that, I mean, we, like the first time you were on the podcast, you kind of walked through your whole story. Uh, and if people are listening now and they haven't heard that, you should definitely go back and listen. I don't remember what episode number yeah. it is, but I'll put it in the show notes. But I heard aspects and elements of your story that I hadn't heard before. And it's just, you yeah. know, it's really intense what you have faced and battled with and overcome to be sitting here right now. It's just, it's, it's a fucking it's miracle, man. Right? It is it really, a miracle. It really is. And, it, you know... Like lately, I've been speaking at a lot of prisons and uh, like this guy came to our show in Long Beach and he did 18 years in like maximum security prisons. Mm -hmm. And and he, you know, what I try to even tell these people that I'm, I try to pay it forward all the time. So when they, anytime anybody asks me to speak at a gang high school or high school or prison or whatever, I just spoke at this uh prison in New York called uh, Goshen, and mm -hmm. it's a maximum security prison. And the thing about this prison is they've already been sentenced, so they're going to do serious time. Mm -hmm. And I and I tell them, listen, you got to keep hope. You can't give up. There's always, uh, you know, there's always uh, room to change. There's always, uh, you know, you, you're at the place where I was. And... Uh, Sorry, I'm just adjusting yeah, your mic. that's all right. That's cool. So I try to just give them that PMA, that positive mental attitude, that it's never too late to change. And even while, like this brother who did 18 years, he's a fan of the Cro-Mags, and he's like, I needed to do that prison time because I would not be alive right now. And I kind of feel that for myself, too, it was the same thing. I, I was... Going on autopilot, marching toward death because, mm -hmm. you know, the shit I was doing was just craziness on the streets, you know? So if somebody's listening to this and they're hearing you for the first time, they haven't heard the other episodes, it's probably, you know, for context, at least like lay a little foundation, yeah. you know, the thumbnail like right. version of your story. Well, uh my father was a professional fighter and uh, was very violent towards my mother. His career started falling apart. He wanted to be a gangster. Like my brother ran into like these professional boxers, Alexis Arguello and all these guys. He went to a fundraiser and uh, they said, you know, what are you, who, what are you doing here? And, he, and my brother was like, well, I want to donate money because there's no you know, when boxers get older, they, they have, uh, it's not, there's not this uh, retirement plan. Right. So it was a fundraiser for that. And they, he said, my, my father was a fighter. And they said, who's your father? And he said, John Shorty McGowan. And then he was like, yo, he started calling all the boxers over. And one of the fighters, professional, said to my, your father could have possibly been world champion I didn't realize he, he was that good. Be, oh yeah, he was knocking everybody the fuck out. He was, and he was a tough Irish scrapper. So he was like war. a great white hope kind of. Yeah, he was. I mean, you know, who's the, uh, the like a Cooney? Wasn't like a Cooney? Yeah, Jerry type? Cooney. Mm -hmm. No, but he was. He was a welterweight. But but the uh, the point is, when his career started falling apart, uh, and he got into the booze, and 
wanting to be a tough guy, he took it out on my mother. And, uh, you know, putting out the book, The Evolution of a Cro-Magnon, I learned a lot more even from my mother. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, he would pay the child support and then come to the house, break her jaw, take all the money so the court couldn't put him in jail because he paid. You know, so it was that type of thing. And, you know, I didn't even find out till I was... 45 uh or mm -hmm. four yeah 45 years old that he actually raped my mother and that's how i was conceived and i uh, you know it was it you know so we got taken out of the house my mother was um we your brothers i have two brothers two siblings i'm the middle and uh the lady who was my mother had to keep we had to keep running from him and hiding then he would find out where we were and break in or whatever beat her down take her money so finally my mother got so much into depression and having to take medic pills and you know there was even uh a suicide attempt and then the, the lady the um lady Social rented worker. us to, no it was the it was the landlord this old irish landlord lady found me and my two brothers out in the snow in our underwear in a filthy apartment and my mother passed out on the couch on pills and she called uh, child services mm -hmm. and that was it, you know? And uh, we got put in an abusive foster home for seven, almost seven years, mm -hmm. you know? Separated yeah, you first. You told some crazy stories the other night about what went on, in, you know, yeah. in, in one of these homes and the level of sort of, you know, corruption that existed, yeah. at least in the 70s. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. Oh, still, they're still doing it today. I just saw a report in New York, child services closed down a house. Because uh, if you get foster kids, they have to give you money. And mm -hmm. back then they were getting $300 a month. I mean, per in kid. 69, right. 1970, whatever, per kid. And they had six foster kids in the home. So they're getting 18... $1,800 a month and you know we're having to steal the dog's dog food and they treated us like slaves all we did was clean the house we were never allowed to go into the refrigerator the entire time we were there um, we got the shit beat out of us mm -hmm. uh, we all had to bathe one time we all had to bathe in the same water all the kids so I went in there I was the last kid and I pulled the plug Because you were the, the youngest tub. or why were no, you last? No, no, just whatever. Whatever they said who, you know, you had to line up to take a bath. And then I pulled the plug because the tub was nasty. And he just came in and like hit me with a right hand. I mean, the, the foster father was a fucking brutal piece of shit. You mm -hmm. know, he, the stuff he did, you know, to terrorize us, to not say anything. And they wonder how these kids don't say anything, but they put the fear of God. I mean, he took me to an insane asylum, Pilgrim State, and smashed. I had said something at um, school, and he took me to Pilgrim State Mental Institution. And I didn't even know where I was going. He, he didn't even say anything. Uh, he just pulled me out of the car by my hair and s you know, started smacking me and smashed my fa face against the fence and... The mental patients were like ripping, you know, mm -hmm. put sticking their fingers in. And he said that if I say anything ever again, he was going to put me and my two brothers in there and no one would ever find us. Right. And, and you're I'm like, like seven, four, eight 14, years, seven oh, years old. Oh, that young. Yeah, it's when I first got there. Mm -hmm. And he had hit me, 
And then I showed the bruises at, to the nurse. And then I had to later say, oh, yeah, we were playing tackle football. I was like seven or eight years old. Right. So uh, it that went on. And then the older foster kids who were 17 and 18, because you stayed in foster care till you were 21 back then. You know, them guys were like doing shit to me and my brothers, molesting us. Mm -hmm. And and I couldn't, they threatened to kick, kick our asses and all this. They were just wankers, man. You know, and, uh, you know, so it was a bad situation. And uh, we went home on one visit and my mother had a nervous breakdown and uh, tried to slit her wrists and, and take a bunch of pills and we would grabbing her stop I mean and we had to call my uncle to come over and then we didn't go home for a while but we knew we couldn't say anything to her because if we she got upset yeah we just we just kept our thing was we had to hustle we you know and I, I say that to this day hustlers are, 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 are not born that way they're created out of a you know the circumstances they're put into we had to steal just to eat I mean they never bought us clothes the entire time we were there, we wore shit till it fell off, and then went to, um, to the dumpster, right? To and you the had Salvation said, Army, and and to get new clothes, you know. And and then when you would be able to get, you know, a couple pennies to rub together, whether you yeah. stole it or made it or whatever, you'd go out and buy stuff for your mom yeah, because well, we you were, were trying, trying to, to get back home. We would. We thought if we just kept buying her stuff that she wanted, she said she liked these paintings, so we we. We found out where they were keeping the money. They stashed it because they couldn't put it in the bank. So they got the cash, cash the checks, and um, and they had this they, uh, in the basement, right. a closet, and that's where they kept the money. And then we found out where the money was. So we just kept going there every day, and we would take five, ten dollars and save it up, and we would buy my mother paintings or a piece of jewelry or whatever, mm -hmm. anything she wanted. And uh, we bought her this Christ head necklace. And that was when we thought it was right before Christmas. And we thought, you know, okay, we're going to come. We stole, I stole a fish tank one time, like just crazy. <laughs> right. We were like buck wild kids, you know, and I really want to try to write it like a, like a wonder years, but just for these three fucking brothers surviving Mm -hmm. in this foster home and what we had to go through for that seven years it was it was insane man right like seven insane. to 15 for you yeah and you have that that moment where finally uh you're facing a a, a term up at spofford right and you have, yeah. you, you got a split well i got put in st john's home for boys after that and then i got i started wilding out it was 76 bicentennial and i started wilding out i sold we to an undercover. I broke into a supermarket because we wanted to rob the pharmacy. So I had two charges, and then they were like, "The next thing you do, we're gonna send you. You're going upstate." And uh, the first, I took acid with this kid in there who got his mother's boyfriend set him on fire as a kid, and yeah. it was just total scar tissue from the neck down. She, as you told it, she filled a bathtub. No, with he did. Fluid? The mother's boyfriend. Uh, he had a hangover and, um, this is what Bobby K told me back then. He, he was just playing. He was like five, six years old and the mother's boyfriend had a hangover 
and dragged them to the bathtub and threw lighter fluid on them and set them on fire. I just I can't even. I mean, insane that. shit! What this kid had to go through, and he survived that. Yeah, and he survived it. He he, he was in. Uh, they put him in um, like a mental institution for a little while. Homes. So he was sexually abused in in this other home. Like the shit that happens to the kids. That I mean, he ended up going to prison for uh, for killing two people. Is he still alive now? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know if he's still alive. I, I know because when I went back to St. John's, they said that he was arrested for murdering two people. But mm -hmm. uh, he tried, the first time we took LSD, he tried to murder me with a knife. He had a f bad trip. Right, he trip. had a bad trip. So then I split and I knew. But you were like, he was a kind of a weird, awkward kid, right? And you, you, oh, no, you he, were able to like be friends with him though? No, the way you described I was really the other good day. friends with him, but he would snap. Like you'd be sitting with him and we had this other friend, Wolfie, and, and he was Puerto Rican. And Bobby K, we would be huffing Vandalex, Carbona, whatever. We, we I don't were even know what that is. Like in the <laughs> 70s, everybody was huffing. Uh -huh. and, and Bobby K would just all of a sudden snap and just start beating people up. And he was maybe like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, 240 pounds of oh, solid wow. muscle. Mm -hmm. They called him the thing. You know, the thing, the, the Marvel can. I mean, that's what he was built like. He yeah. was just built. Like, and he was an animal and he would, he would snap. So then I went out onto the streets and hustling heroin, carrying, uh, I was a drug mule and then, uh, they robbed, uh, the dealer and then we ended up, ended up, uh, in Forest Park selling dust and, uh, got shot in the leg with a 22. We sold this guy, sister angel dust and she jumped out of the family's second story window mm -hmm. and he came in there like hey who got dust and when we i was like yo right here the you know he just opened up the side of the van pop 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 so uh and that's you a got, crazy you got story shot in, in the calf right? yeah i got you I saw still the got scar the there yeah yeah i got a hole in my in the back of my left calf wow. but the thing was we we it was I was selling for this dude computer and then the guy that worked for him was this guy Disco Mike and he looked like John Travolta on steroids, and I didn't know it at the time, but um, he used to take all the kids from Forest Park to his house and slip them and Mickey and rape them. He was mm -hmm. he raped like like over a dozen kids or whatever they said like he did it to all these kids. So after I got shot, we went back to his house and he had this little protege kid that looked like a little John Travolta kid, 15 years old. And, uh, you know, he pulled the bullet out of my leg and made this these drinks. And then all of a sudden I'm like, yo, what, what the fuck was in that? And he's like, oh, I gave you something to take the edge off and relax. So I blacked out and then I woke up with this big motherfucker carrying me to the bedroom. And I'm like, yo, what the fuck are you doing? Because, you know. That's mm -hmm. one thing. Nobody ever put their hands on me. When I left that home, I was like, all right, you know. And you're like 15, 16? I was 15 years old. Um, yeah, because it was right before my 16th birthday. My sweet yeah. 16, I spent in um, in, in lockup. But he, um, so he dropped me and then I just blacked back out. I woke up hearing like these screaming from hell and I walked toward the back room and when I opened the door, he was he was uh, raping that kid, mm -hmm. and uh, I've just 
he had a bat, right? And his, uh, you know, he's a Guido, so he had a, a baseball bat. All the Guidos had baseball bats in their bedroom, and he had guns and shit, but he was a coward. So I just picked up the bat and started teeing off on him. And then I left, uh, as I was leaving the house, uh, he had a big ziplock full of angel dust bags, the aluminum foil packets, and I just grabbed it and went to Forest Park. And Forest Park was hot because the shooting just happened, so all the right. fucking cops undercovers were You're there. so out of your mind, you decide oh, that's the place that dust. you're supposed to go. It was kind of like subconsciously I wanted to go to prison. I needed. To, I, I knew bad shit was going to happen. I don't know, what, uh, like... So I went back to the dome in Forest Park, had my pipe, and I just started filling up my pipe and smoking dust. And then I heard, get on the ground. And I look around and there was like fucking six cops, guns mm -hmm. to my head, put me down, took took me to Central Booking, got me for uh, distribution, uh, uh, distribution, and possession of uh, a, a felony narcotic because Angel Dust was, you know, a felony. And so what are you looking at? Uh, well, they wanted me to snitch on the dude that I was getting the shit from. And I know back, you don't ever snitch on nobody. You know, like Beretta said, you do the crime, you do the time. You don't go fucking snitching on people. And uh, yeah, they were... You know, trying to scare me with six, you're going to do six years, you know, all this type shit. And um, I said, look, the guy just, you know, they played the good cop, bad cop shit. All, the, you know, and I said, look, the guy just brought it to me in the park. I knew right where he lived there, everything, you know, but I wasn't going to snitch on him. And uh, so then they took me on up. the John Travolta guy. No, the guy that he was making it for was uh, com computer. The guy, he Compu was just You're talking about computer. Computer. This guy was just the muscle for him. Gotcha. And he would control. I got the job because the last kid split with like all these bags of dust. So that's how I got the job. Mm -hmm. So I would hold the dust, sell the dust, and then this guy, Disco, would be there with his gun and make sure, every, you know, he was kind of like the muscle at the dome. And, uh, yeah, but. They wanted me to snitch on the dude that uh, that was making the dust. Did you tell them about Disco, though, and what he was doing? No, I didn't say nothing. I just kept my mouth shut. So how did that guy end up? I don't even know. Oh, I found that. out because before, when I went back to uh, Forest Park, there was a couple of people there at first. And I said, yo, this guy is fucking raping kids. And then I found out, like, earlier in the 80s, after, like or 82, 83, I, I, I saw some of those guys uh, that hung out at the dome and they say, yeah, man. Like I found out later on that he had done that to like a lot of kids, that that mm -hmm. was his MO. And then he had people wanting to fucking kill him. So he had to see, right. he split and went wherever the fuck he went. I don't know. And so explain the significance of the dome. The dome. That was like the place. Yeah. So you would pull in, the dome was, it was a band show in Forest Park. So bands played in there. And that's in Queens. The Ramones play, played there. Yeah, it's so all like it's half off, hour outside of Yeah, Manhattan. it's like off Woodhaven Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And um, and then the way the whole system operated, you would pull in and drive along the tree line uh, and then come up to the staircase. And then you'd be in your car and you'd be like, 
yo, who got chewies, you know, chewing oils, who got quaaludes, who got dust, who got this, who got acid, who got doses. And then the dealers would come down the stairs and there was benches all there and everybody hung out and stashed their shit all over that area. And then whatever you wanted, they would they would mm-hmm. bring it down the stairs. It's a famous place. Like I ended up meeting through a cop friend of mine in New York from the 104 precinct. I was trying to find a cop to write this Angel Dust pilot, which got me representation from ICM. Mm-hmm. They read it. Uh, and I couldn't find any cops around. And then just one day, my friend was in Long Island wearing his Sergeant 75. He was in the 75 out of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And he, and the old guy comes up and goes, hey, you want a job? And uh, my friend Bill Hall, Sergeant Bill Hall goes, yeah, I'm in the 75. He's like, oh, I'm retired out of the 104. And he's like, the 104, that's where the dust was. Forest Park, that whole area. And... Uh, He's like, let me ask you something. Do you have any experience, uh, you know, back then with the angel dust in the 70s and 80s? Because my buddy's writing a pilot. He needs to talk to some Mm -hmm. cops that do research. And the guy smiles and goes, I was the head of the angel dust task force from 76 to 82. Right. And he's he's like, every single. And I met with the guy. He's a legend in the NYPD. His name is is uh, Detective John Wildman Wild. And the cops named him Wildman uh-huh. because he was one of these dirty Harry. Like when he found out bikers were selling dust at a bar, he would just roll up, take a baseball bat, go in and just start cracking their heads till somebody fucking told him something. Uh-huh. Pure maniac. I mean, the guy's in his 70s and he's sitting in this Irish pub. I went all the way out to Long Island to interview him and he's fucking just still jacked uh-huh. like you know you don't want to fuck with the guy so what did he uh what did he have he to say about that era like because you had your perspective from through the eyes of a 15 year old kid who yeah. was on you know the negative end of the equation yeah. so what- well he knew the people i was selling for and he said oh i busted a lot of computer. them computer yeah what happened to computer he, he didn't know, he, I guess he didn't know that it, what his name was or whatever. I heard he had an explosion in his house. I, I've heard several things, but he, uh, there was two places, the Dome and the Carbines, which was in Ridgewood by Grover Cleveland Park. That was the two big dust areas. So anyway, the bottom line was I wasn't going to snitch. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you get busted, your back is up against the wall. And they were trying to scare the shit out of me. And uh, I said, hey man, like, you know, just whatever's gonna happen, I'm, you know, I'm going this alone. So the cops would drive him. And, and one of the things they always told you in St. John's was if you fuck up, they're going to send you to Spofford. And if you saw 
Mike Tyson's undisputed thing. He showed a picture of Spofford. And that was I, the home yeah, where he, how many years was he there? Uh, I, he was in and out of there. It's not a long-term mm-hmm. facility. It's it's where you go to wait to go to court. So like <coughs> you could, you could get remanded. In other words, I spent three months there, so I would go to court once a month, and they would be like, "Remand means you're going back to Spofford." Mm-hmm. But when you got up there, it was in. Um, the the one of the worst parts of the Bronx, and the Irish cops that drove me up there, uh, you know, they were like, "Yo, listen," and I'm gonna tell you this straight up, and they were dead serious, like, uh, and they said, you know, I'm gonna speak word for word verbatim exactly what they told me because I'll never forget it. They were like, the last white kid that was in here, uh, they stabbed him to death, and they said the first nigger or spick that fucks with you in there, you better take him out. And I said, I'm not prejudiced. And they were like, they just started laughing and they go, remember what I said, you know, the one cop driving. And uh, yeah, so the minute I got in there, it was on, man. I was like just fighting from day one, just Mm -hmm. hitting, hit this big black dude with a chair, you know, just... And I had to keep going to court. I wrote about it in the book, Evolution of a Cro-Magnon. It's like even being inside, you know, it's a whole culture of prison culture and lockup culture. It's like this whole fucking different set of rules you have mm-hmm. to live by. You know, what it what the rules out in the world ain't the rules when you're locked up. And you don't have the rule book going in. You got to learn no, it quick, No, I didn't know right? nothing because this black dude, we were in Indoc where they strip search you and all that shit. And he's like, motherfucker, you're going to be my Maytag. And I was like, nah, you're going to be my Maytag. And everybody started laughing. And uh, and I said to this Puerto Rican cat, I was like, yo, what the, what the fuck's a Maytag? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and he's like, yo, you just told that big motherfucker that he's going to have to wash your fucking drawers and suck your dick, you know? Like, it, it means you're going to be his bit. Right. You know, when you call somebody a Maytag, it's like, yo, you're my bitch. So, and then the minute I got to the wing, he just <laughs> fucked with me. And I banged him out with a chair, and then I I knocked out his friend. I lost, that's how I lost that knuckle. That mm-hmm. knuckle, it got so infected, so they put me in the cells, which was like this padded room, because I broke. That's what they call it. Yo, that motherfucker broke. It means I just went buck wild. Like, staff tried to restrain me. I was fighting staff. So they kept- But you knew you had to, you had to, you had to go in swinging from yeah. the start. Otherwise, you were going to yeah. be a, a target, and you were going to go down Well, the quick. thing was, he, this guy- uh, made, did some bullshit to me. He pulled out his fucking dick and tried to like hump the back of my head and then touch, you know. So actually, he got the worst end of the deal because for doing that in there, that's like a crime. Mm. I didn't want to press charges against him, but well, it's like sexual assault. Yeah, it's or like sexual assault, right. what he did. So I didn't press no charges. But I just, I just rolled with it. But they nicknamed me when I came out. I went back to, to uh to B three, which was the intermediate wing, mm-hmm. and they nicknamed me like Mighty Whitey and fucking I had respect the rest of the rest of the time. I was good right. in sports. So I was playing ball with the brothers, playing handball like with the Spanish kids. You know. And then anyway, so I So how long were you in Spofford? I was there for three months. Uh-huh. 
And uh and then they finally sent me up eighteen months upstate in uh in a facility called Lincoln Hall Reformatory, which was you know, you had everything from attempted murder rape on down. So uh and a lot they and a lot of kids with serious emotional issues mm-hmm. and fucking I had to see a psychiatrist the whole time I was there. Um you know, and uh, my brother was there too. So I got respect because I was in an intermediate. We were the first people to go into Rawway State Prison for Scared Straight. Uh, this was in 78. I spent my sweet 16, mm-hmm. I spent in Spofford. And then, uh, you know, they took us to Fishkill State Prison, maximum security prison. And, uh, you know, they scare you straight. But that's what I said. That shit don't work because if... If they don't give you something to get you out of the life that you're in, then you're just going to go back to what you knew right. when you got out. And that's what they do with all these people now. It's just warehousing. Uh, you know, they don't, there's no, it's correctional. It means you're supposed to rehabilitate the people and they don't do that. They just yeah, warehouse not, for beds. There's money in it. So that's, you know. You're not getting rehabilitated. You're getting trained into how to become a professional criminal, criminal right? That's it. And you're going to go out and you're going to reoffend. And, you know, you've had your, you know, roller coaster ride through this system. We haven't even gotten like a quarter of the way like, yeah. through your story. Yeah. But essentially, you know, like you get out of this system that you're, you know, you back have this. Back out on the street. Back out. Reoffended, sold drugs. Right. Ultimately, um, you're, then your back's really against the wall and you end up yeah, I was signing up at, for the Navy basically well, to get out of it. they gave me an alternative. My mother was dating, uh, whatever. I had a friend that was, I don't know what their relationship was, but. I wasn't tight with her, and she tried to take me home. Somebody has to sign you out of lockup. You have to have someplace to go. They just can't release you onto the street. And uh, she signed the paperwork, but then I had nothing in common with her because I, she'd never raised me. I was never there. Uh, I was just doing crazy shit. I was going out and getting hammered. Where's mom now? Now she lives in Queens in Astoria. And how's, and how's, since this how's book she came doing out, and how's your relationship with beautiful. her? Beautiful. She doesn't eat meat anymore. I mean, it's, this book brought us. But you are, you've are you been able to like mend that relationship. Well, if, I, I'm going to tell you something. Writing this book, it was therapy for me. And it cleared a lot of um, you know, stuff off the table between me and her. There was a reason she never took us back, and uh, she had a boyfriend who who didn't want us around. Mm-hmm. So she chose the boyfriend over us. And uh, I was even when I was writing this book, I'm like, how the fuck am I gonna end this book? Like, and I li- I was, I actually lived the ending of the book. It was playing out in front of me. My brother was about to die from addiction right the day before 9/11. I did an intervention on him. Fucking got him a bed in St. Thomas in a rehab that my friend ran. Fucking planes hit the building. Boom. He ain't getting out of New York. Mm. He detoxed on my couch. And my mother, um, her husband had um, gambled away the house at the time. So she was homeless. And at this time, I had record deals and stuff. and, And I had quite a bit of money. 
that I had accumulated. So I turned around and got her an apartment and mm-hmm. furniture and everything. She lost everything. She was penniless, homeless, no furniture. No, I got her an apartment. And um, so like a month. Uh, and you were able to have a uh, half closure with the foster family, right? You well, I'm going to get to that night. first, but dig right. this. So the guy that didn't want us around, her name, his name was Carl. Back in the 70s when we were kids, he, he didn't like us. And then after a couple of months, my, my, my mother calls me up and uh, she's like, I have something to tell you. I was like, what? And she's like, I, I let Carl move in to the house that I got her. I'm like, how the fuck could you do that to me? Oh, my God. And then I was like, you never fucking loved us. You, we had this huge brawl on the phone. And then she's like, I started saying really mean stuff to her. And she's like, stop saying that. Stop saying it came. It was like this climactic situation. And then she just blurted out, your father raped me. And he raped, he raped me um, for your younger brother to be born too. I only planned to have Eugene. So I was 21 years old with three kids. He was beating me down every day. What was I supposed? And then me and her just sat on the, literally on the phone for five minutes, sobbing uncontrollably. And then like we just have been best friends mm-hmm. since that, uh, you know. And then so and then I had to confront that Foster family because when the first pressing of this book came out, and I needed to have closure. It's the five parts of story design. The last one is is uh, the resolution. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, you know, inciting incident, progressive complications, crisis, climax, resolution. So I had my climax. I needed the resolution. And I was doing a reading in the town over from them. And I said, I got, I told the lady from Simon and Schuster who was driving me, she rented a minivan. And I said, I, I got to fucking go see this house. And I just rolled up and, uh, I'm just looking at it and all the fucking bad shit's coming back, you know? And I'm just sat there in the in the car looking at the house like and then this old man was like watering his lawn and I was like I got to ask him, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking they moved out. <clears throat> and I get out and and I you know, I remembered him cuz he was from Italy. He was like, "Yeah, I said, who lives in that house?" I said, who's in that house now? He's like, oh, yeah, it's a friend and, and Rose. I said, Rose Valenti still lives there? And he goes, yeah, Rose and, and Fran, mm-hmm. their daughter. And I said to him. And Fran's like about your age? No, Fran's older than me. She's about, I would say, she's a good 10 years older than me. But she was living in the house she when you were a kid. She was the real kid. So the real kids got everything, Fran and Vito. They got everything, whatever the fuck they wanted, and then we had to watch them have Christmas and tour and all, and, you know, and money and all kinds of shit and food, and we, you know, we had to stay out on the patio, sleep in the garage. That was, you know, and then, uh, and I said, well, I was one of the foster kids that got that house shut down, and the man just looked in my eyes, and then he was like. You know, he remembered who the fuck I was and he dropped the garden hose and ran into his house and wouldn't come out. And then I was like, I told Stephanie, I was like, yo, they fucking still live there. And she's like, 
you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go bang on that fucking door and confront them. What do you think? She's like, you want me to come with you? And I was like, nah, I got to do this by myself. And um, I needed closure, you know? And uh, so I went up and I rang the bell. All the shades were drawn. It looked like nobody was home, you know, but the cars were in the driveway. And, um, and then I just started banging on the fucking door. I opened up the screen door and I'm like, boom, boom. So this lady comes to the door, pulls it open. She's like, what the fuck are you knocking on my door like that for? And the first thing I did was look because she had this real big black, it looked like a black bean with hair coming out of it back in the like day. Like a mole, a under, mole her nose. under her nose. And that's the first thing I looked for. And I was like, that's her. And she was this miserable old woman. And I was like, is your name Rose Valenti? She's like, who are you? What the fuck are you doing at my door? And I just made her say her name. And I was like, is your, I, I said it like five times and she wouldn't answer. I go, are you Rose Valenti? And she goes, yeah, who the hell are you? Finally. And then I said, I'm John McGowan. I was one of the foster kids in here. And she clutched her chest and there was like a wall, maybe two, three feet you know, behind her and she just went back against the wall and was just like, stood there like fucking stunned. And then Fran came and opened up the door and she's like, oh my God, John McGowan, we were just talking about you. How are you and your brothers come in? And I said, you know, I was like, what the fuck makes you think I want to come in that house? Do you think I have good memories of what you people did to us? And then, and then she was like, oh, and for effect, I had a wife beater on with my Terminator shades. I look like a fucking total, like, like maniac kind of looking dude. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, how's your brothers, Eugene and Frank? And I go, we're all right now that we all got out of prison and like, just trying to put the fear of uh, God into them a little bit. And all Rose kept saying was, take off your glasses. And uh, finally I did. And then she looked in my eyes and she just said, you're Marie's son. Like she was just in another fucking galaxy. Like never in a million years did she think that day, that Saturday, I was going to roll up. But what do you make of that? Like, what do you think was going through her mind? I mean, I presume not too many of the kids were dropping by to no. <laughs> reconnect with her. So this is a unique situation. But... Was she afraid or was she, she sort was of just, realizing like the, the I, I, ills of her ways? Or No, I, I don't. I think them people are so twisted. They were probably like, we gave them every, you know, you know who mm. knows what their version. You know, the fact of the matter is we kept a diary for almost seven years when we gave it to the social worker. That man broke down in tears for the shit they were the doing to us. Did. Yeah, and it yeah, shut Bob them down, Yeah, Bob Hayes, right? and then they pulled all the kids out of the home. So let them say whatever the fuck they want, how nice they were to us. That's fucking bullshit. And, you know, uh, the state said it too, you know. I, I don't think she was... I think she was just so fucking stoned that... Uh, stunned that she just was bugging, man. Mm-hmm. And then... Fran, uh, you could see she was very uneasy because I think they knew we were coming back at some point. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, that's why the old man took off. So how did you wrap that up? Well, what happened was Fran looks and tries to change the subject when I said, oh, yeah, we're good now that we all got out of prison and all this shit. And then she was like, oh, who's that over in the minivan? Is that is that your wife? I said, nah. <coughs> she works, you know, with the publishing company to put out my book. And Fran goes, oh, you wrote a book? So you're going to be famous? And I go, no, but you are. I swear to God. And then I said to her, I go, I go. What was the look on her face when you said that? She just was like, that's when it just hit her. Like, what the fuck? Like, she didn't have nothing else to say at that point. I shut her the fuck down. And, uh, you know, the thing is, she didn't do anything other than, you know, was complicit in what the fuck those people did to us. It's not like... Vito was just on drugs. He didn't give a shit. And, her, and sh- her husband. No, Vito was the son. So the two real children were Vito and Fran. I see. So Fran's Vito brother. was their son. And he, I mean, I remember his friend. And he Rose's, sold drugs. Rose's husband? Ro- was he gone Rose's at this Nick. Point? He died. That was one of the first things I said. I go, where's Nick? And she goes, oh, he died like 40 years ago from lung cancer. And I said, yeah, I know. Because I did know that he, he passed away. My mother told me, and um, and then the last thing that I said to them was, I just wanted you fucking people to know that you didn't win. I I was like, you tried to break our spirit and make me make us feel like shit that we didn't exist. Nobody wanted us. That's the kind of shit they would say to us. You're lucky to be here. Nobody else, not even your own fucking mother, wanted you. You fucking pieces of shit. Like th- like making us feel like garbage. I was like, I turned out a good person and I just wanted you to know you didn't fucking win. So fuck you to both of them. And I just turned around and walked to the van and didn't look back. And then I was like, you know, I was just looking ahead. I'm like, Stephanie, what are they doing? And she's like, their fucking jaws are hanging down to the ground. And we just went and did probably one of the best readings. I said, you know, I, I went and it was the town over. I said, you know where I just was? I went to that fucking foster home and they were like, what? Like the crowd that was in the Right, so when you think about that, I mean, obviously that was a cathartic experience and it brought closure to you, which was important to you. But as somebody who kind of, you know, walks this spiritual path now uh, and those there, there are certain principles that you adhere to, those sort of rules for how you live, um, you know, how do you reflect back on that? Like, can you say that you are in a place of, forgiveness or how do you reconcile like these and these other things that have happened to you uh and the people behind them in terms of like giving you peace of mind and kind of you know walking uh you know trying to like sort of live your life engaged in your higher consciousness you know what it's uh it's let go let god i can't never forgive them for what they did to me but it just doesn't it doesn't have pushed me to the point of violence anymore. And I had a lot of shit going on in, through the 80s and 90s. I was very violent. I never admitted to anyone up until I was almost whatever, you know, 40-something years old that I was molested. Like, And I, I woke up in a bad dream that these guys... And it was like, it was, it was a metaphor because... These kids used to, we used to sleep in the freezing garage and they would come in and just pull the blankets off of us 
And then I would have to like sleep. They would take out our blankets, so they had extra blankets. And I had a recurring dream of that. And I had been working on a film based on all the shit that was happening to the main character. It was based on me, but I never told my writing partner. And then I just woke up sobbing uncontrollably. And it was just that him pulling them two standing over me and they ripped the blankets off me. And I mm -hmm. was like, and I just, I was like, why the fuck did they do that to me? Why did, they, you know, I just lost my shit. And, um, you know, like, thank God those dudes wasn't there that day because, like, I heard they still come and visit them. And if they, if like, that's the two people that I can honestly say, uh, I'm not sure how I'll react if I ever see them. I'm probably going to fucking punch them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just can't excuse them for the way that they... Uh, put fear into me every day. Just like my father called me in 99 and he found out, you know, my brother said, oh yeah, this guy in a bar knows him. And then my brother, you know, gave him my number. They wanted to have a dinner and meet me. And he called me up. I was like, bro, you don't want to meet me. I said, trust me, I'm not letting go what you did to my mother. What you did to me, whatever. What you did to my mother, you thought you're a tough guy. And he still wasn't, this was 20 years ago. He thought, you know, whatever. He's still thinking he's a fucking tough guy, 50 mm -hmm. years old. I said, I'm going to fucking bang you out, dude. So when they met uh, my they, brother. They, he, your, bro your dad meeting your yeah, brothers. Yeah, my, my dad met my two brothers. And we have a half sister. And he sent her in to make sure that I wasn't there. And he, she said, oh, no, it's just Eugene and Frank. And then he came in. Mm -hmm. Like all nervous looking around and, they, and he, they're like, yeah, but he's uh, since, John is the wild, uh, you know, he's since passed though. No, man. Crazy. Oh, he's, he's around. Story. My brother's in, my younger brother's an addict and almost died, uh, three or four times already. So they had to detox my brother to do the next surgery on him, heart surgery. And, uh, they they sent them to the VA up at the Five Finger Lakes, up way upstate. So dig this. This is how there's never no fucking coincidences in life. And um, Frank called me up and told me this story. So he's in there and the nurse comes in and he's detoxing off pharmaceuticals and all this shit because they can't, can't you know, he's got uh, Mercer. So they've, they have to keep taking bone away from his chest and fucking giving him another heart surgery and all this. He's almost died like three or four times already. And uh, the nurse looks at him and goes, oh, McGowan, are you any relation to John McGowan? And he's like, yeah, John Joseph McGowan, that's my brother. And the nurse goes, no, John Emil McGowan. Don't get no more Irish than Emil, does mm -hmm. it? And he's like, Frank goes... That's my father. And she's like, John Emil McGowan is your father. And Frank goes, yeah. And she goes, I'm going to be right back. He was in the fucking next room to my brother. And this is way north of New York this City. This is way okay. north of New York City. In a fucking, in a, in a fucking, uh, in, in, in uh, like VA a hospital. VA assisted facility like a lot of them guys are getting ready to die or whatever they didn't they gave my 
they sent my brother there to die. They said he's not going to make it. They gave him, he, they told him later, they gave him a 10% chance, less than 10% chance of living. So my father was in the next fucking room and she goes over there and she comes back and she's like, do you have two brothers? What are the names? And he's like, yeah, John, John Jay and you, and Eugene Michael goes back in. And then back and forth like that. And then she's like, your father's in the next room. And the priest wants to come over and ask for your forgiveness for what he did to you guys because your father's dying. And my brother goes, tell that motherfucker to go to hell. I'm not fucking forgiving him. Fuck him. And then they went back over there. And he's like, he don't want nothing. You know, mom told him, "He, he don't want nothing to do with you. And then Frank called me up and then they sent them to another part of the facility. And then they were having to go to the same specialist. My father pulled through and so did Frank. Mm -hmm. So they ended up having to go to the same doctor and they wheel my brother in in a wheelchair. And she's like, oh yeah, that's John McGowan over there too. And, And Frank goes, yeah, that's my father. And he goes, I ain't his fucking father. We just got the same last name. And then Frank gets up out of the wheelchair and he's like, you're damn straight, you ain't my father, you piece of shit. Tried to go at him. And then they moved my father out of that facility. That is so heavy. Dude, I'm, but, I swear but to look, God. But that's... listen, you said like there's no coincidences. It's like God is compelling this situation. Like let's take these yeah, two guys man. that on some level, you know, need some kind of reconciliation and get them out of New York City throw them upstate into this environment where they're going to have to like wrestle with each other. And here's the thing is like, you know, from what my, like my brother was never, my brother, he threw my mother down the stairs when she was holding Frank. So Frank Mm. always had. Hard to let go of that. You know, some brain issues or whatever, like Uh, fucking. Oh, your brother was always like, Uh there was something a little off with him. And and me and E were always the tough ones. Like we were like, you know, my brother E even to this day, cause he won't, like I worked on my shit through spirituality, but he refused to do that. So he walks around with the anger that I had in the eighties and nineties. And mm-hmm. he just flies off the fucking handle. My mother keeps, you know, the thing is, is like when this shit book came out and my mother was like, I had no idea that they were fucking molesting you in there and doing all this shit. I was like, mom, we never, you think I'm going to go out and fucking tell people? I didn't even tell anybody that that, I did it as a, as as therapy. I needed, I would keep coming to that part of the book and just break down crying for two hours and, and not want to put it in there. And then, I, you know, and I was like, my writing teacher was like, you have the to most write the truth. That's the most that's important the whole thing for shit. you to... But when she told my brother, fucking my older brother denied it. He goes, that never happened. He's in denial. My younger brother goes, yeah, they were doing that shit to us. Mm-hmm. And then she went back and said, both your brothers said that that happened. And he was like, I don't want to talk about it. And he still won't talk about it to this day. And he always... You know. It's heavy stuff. Yeah, it's heavy, and I want to get to kind of the solution part of it. Yeah. But to get there, we got to leapfrog a little bit through. I mean, you you go to the Navy, 
that's when you and you start getting interested in the punk rock scene. You're in well, Norfolk. You find this club, right? But you find this club in Norfolk, yeah. and you kind of tap into it. And you know, you're exposed to some of the acts at the time, the Untouchables and et Teen cetera. Idols. And and then going and up then to there's DC. like one one big night that ultimately ends up kind of shifting your whole life. Yeah, well, to 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 uh, to set it up properly. Even when I went in the Navy, I went to boot camp high on Angel Dust. I was like, uh, I didn't change one single thing about you, you it. You didn't want to go into the Navy. You no, just That I was the choice you had to make. They gave me a choice right. between the Navy or going back to jail. And yeah. I said, yo, fucking the state didn't raise no fool. Send me to the Navy. So we were shipping out of Fort Hamilton. And my brother E was like, yo, I got $40. They sell fucking dust down the street. Mm -hmm. So we went with this other dude and bought four bags of dust. And, and I'd never been on an airplane. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Great Lakes Naval Station, dusted. It got out of boot camp, <laughs> fucking was smuggling drugs, selling drugs. Just show selling. up day one. Day one. Lit up. But I came out of jail, I was cock diesel. Like they say in prison, you you know, when you're locked up, you got to get your weight up. Mm -hmm. I put on 35 pounds of muscle. And this one guy, when I lived on the streets, he always picked on me in Rockaway. And the first thing I did, I saw him. Before I got arrested, I was hustling drugs again in Rockaway. And this guy, Philip Beggy, he's like, wow, you got big, dude. And I just walked up and fucking knocked him out. And then I was like, he's like, what'd you do that for? Like later. And I was like, cause you fucking picked on me every fucking day, dude. Dad, now you got yours. How's it feel? So I went into the Navy, got <laughs> out of boot camp, smuggling drugs on my ship uh -huh. from weed from Jamaica, fucking pills, uh, selling LSD and just a wild punk rock dude in Norfolk. I was the only fucking squid that the punkers in Norfolk let hang out because I fought these rednecks that were fucking with everybody in the bar and they didn't know how to fight. And I just mm -hmm. fucking, and I was like, even if they wanted to get rid of me, they couldn't. But you'd be in uniform and then you'd pull up to the club and, and like and changing your punk, punk rock, rock clothes. clothes. Yeah, I'd be <laughs> on duty going to happy hour you know, fucking getting get just illegally and just uh -huh. going there and watching uh, the band sound check and drinking and doing whatever. And then one day I pull up there, the guy runs out. He's like, you have to see this fucking man. And he's like, the guy's name was Doug that owned the club. It's still there, the Taj Mahal in mm. Norfolk. And, and uh, I was like, all right. And I'm walking in. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. Dude, they're black. And I go up and it was the Bad Brains and they were doing a sound check. And I seem to think to this day that it was this song, Super Touch Shit Fit. And um, they just clicked that shit off. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Next level. So I was hanging out with them before they went on. I sold their manager LSD and then... Saw the show and HR, the singer was talking. They had just started to get into Rastafari, but still dressed punk rock mm -hmm. and uh, no dreads or nothing yet. And um, I just had this deep talk with the dude and he's like- with HR? Oh. Yeah, with the singer. And about PMA, positive mental attitude. And he's like, oh, we're gonna run into each other again and all of this and uh, you know, I, uh, there was one, you know, my, my, um, ship went out to sea 
And there was this one fucking redneck on my ship that kept fucking with me. And everybody else knew to leave me the fuck alone. I was wearing sex pistols, destroy bondage shirts with the SWAT stickers. Like, just fucking, you know, the, the old sex pistol mm-hmm. shit. The way, you know, punk rock was for shock value. I'm not a Nazi. Just, you wore shit that fucking pissed people off. So, everybody on the ship knew to leave me the fuck alone. They had me seen a psychiatrist. That's why I got that time bomb. On my hand, because the psychiatrist said that I was a time bomb waiting to go off. And uh, I was beating people up in town, but I, I kind of wouldn't do that shit on my command. Like, the first class boatsmate uh, was an intense duty. He trained mm-hmm. in martial arts. He taught the SEALs in, in San Clemente, hand hand. I mean, he was a fucking intense dude. And... Um, that's all right. That the yeah. Instagram live just went tweet. Yeah, so uh, I I was training with him and he kind of liked me, uh, and he let me slide on a lot of shit. He caught me smoking weed. I was up at like the 06 level out at sea where the fucking radars are. I climbed all the way up to mm-hmm. superstructure, and this guy was a fucking ninja, man. He got his last command. He like. They tried to hit him in the head and throw him overboard because he caught smugglers on the ship and he fucking they he fucked them up and killed one of them and like it just. But you get in a fight with this dude? No, I didn't get in a, the the first class liked me, so he let me go on a lot of shit. And I told him, I said, man, tell that fucking dude he needs to leave me the fuck alone, man. And he warned him. And uh, right before I left. To, we were going to South America for shellbackers when you crossed the equator. We were going past Brazil all the way to Antarctica, like down mm-hmm. to Argentina. And I had gotten my wisdom teeth pulled. So I had, unbeknownst to me, I had an infection. So I was in a really bad mood and I had gotten popped for a drug case right before this. So I was restricted to the ship. They wouldn't let me off the ship. So everybody's going off the ship in Bermuda and partying. I'm fucking like prisoner status pretty much because I had a civilian case. I pled not guilty, but Mm -hmm. they were like, you know, I was fucking up on the ship. So they restricted me to the ship, took all my pay, everything. Uh, They busted me down to the low pay grade, E1, the whole shit. And uh, I just was in severe pain, and the dude just fucked with me. And I just walked into the paint locker, because that's where the boats and mates mixed all the paint. And I, it's called dogging down the door. I, I dogged down two of these latches so nobody could open the door from the inside. And I picked up a paint can, and I beat the living shit out of him. He shit himself. I I just beat him in, like, the soft tissue, the arms, the mm-hmm. And then I just went to my rack and laid there, and then the master out of arms came and got me, put Brig, you know, and uh, so I'm in there, and then my fucking mouth gets so infected. After we left Puerto Rico, they had to medevac me back from a, a helo back to fucking Puerto Rico. And then they forgot to tell them that I was prisoner status, and so they had me hooked up to an IV for like, a week and then my they said well your ship's gone we're not gonna fly you back out to your ship 
you're going to have to go back to Norfolk. But they kept me till I could get a military hop and they forgot to say I was restricted. Mm -hmm. So then um, went back to Norfolk, still didn't say I was restricted. Then the guy after like two months was like, uh, McGowan, uh, I just got a call. Your ship's coming in today. Like wink, wink. Like mm -hmm. the master, master ship's police called him and said, I'm supposed to be restricted and they're on the way to get me. The ship already docked. So I fucking pack up few clothes, had some money. What, what would you have been facing? Oh, they would have sent me to Leavenworth. For beating that guy down and then the drug case. So uh, I got on the bus that ran down Hampton Boulevard through the gate. And then the, it does the whole naval base and then goes back out. So I took the city bus. And as I'm pulling out of the gate, I'm stopped at the light. And there goes the two master at arms, the ship's police with the fucking guns. From and your ship. Yeah, cross to cross. The, the master at arms, the chief master at arms and the other, and in the first class were walking over to Nimitz Hall to get me. And I fucking was like, I just shrunk down in my seat a little bit and just was like, like if they would have just looked to the left, they would have just pulled mm -hmm. out their guns and been like, dragged me off the bus. And I rolled out the gate and I went to stay in uh, D.C. with uh, Henry Rollins, and I stayed in Norfolk a little bit, then went made my way to D.C. Mm -hmm. for some reason. I just thought, I, I was like, I didn't know where I was going, but I was like, I'm done with all of this. And you knew Henry from the punk scene? I knew Henry from the punk and scene. And Ian McKay? And Ian McKay. So they, right, they had an apartment together, and then I was just like, yo, I split from the military. They're like, well, you could stay with us for a little bit. and But you yeah, so... So you basically are you go a a, you go a wall and like what warrants. is yeah like so you you have warrants out for you like yeah. is there a statute of limitations no. on that like how does They've that work? They brought people back. I think I had the second longest a wall history in Norfolk Naval Base, and the one guy beat me. He I had fifteen years when my band members how do they snitched not, on me. But when you become like a well known musician, how I do they always not had a, a, a fake name? <laughs> and it was weird because like everybody on the scene knew that I split from the military, but nobody snitched on me. It took my own two band members to snitch on me to fucking get me caught. But I had and you've, you've like ironed it out now, or is I've it still it like a pending? The, no, thing. I got a general upgraded to an honorable discharge because my lawyer argued like, "Yo, this guy came out of this traumatic childhood. Right. He was fucked up on drugs when he went in. He should have never been in the navy to begin with." They offered me my 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 uh, my uh, benefits and everything, and I wouldn't take it. I didn't feel it. I said I don't deserve that. I didn't, you know. I I, I you know, there was a time when I went in when I, where I tried to do the right thing, mm -hmm. and you know, fucking, uh, it just coming out of where I was coming out of. I, I I hadn't dealt with any of that shit yet, so it was like, you know, like uh, yeah, my my. Uh, and then I, I was a Hare Krishna. I lived as a monk for two mm -hmm. years. So he said, oh, conscientious objector. I didn't split during wartime. And um, and with all the other stuff. And the fact that I never got arrested under my name. That's how they catch you. They catch you by you fucking up. You get pulled over for a fucking running a red light, whatever. Filing to get a new social security card. Anything you do. That's why everybody gets caught. Nobody That's why you didn't. It. You never got a driver's license. Never got a driver's license. Uh -huh. Worked off the book, 
you know, like crazy shit. And I even talk about the story uh, in uh, 80, you know, a bunch of shit happened. And um, I ended up leaving the Cro-Mags in 88. I had almost two years of a hardcore crack pill drinking addiction. Mm -hmm. I had... Rob, we t- yeah, we talked about that. Strong arm drug dealers, on. and, and right. I got pulled over. Like we, me and the girl, we were gonna sell her car. I'm flying through the desert at 100 miles an hour, no license, a wall, fucking crack in the car, everything, and I get whoop whoop pulled over on the way to Palm Springs. I said, "That's it. We're getting fucking seven. Oh, that's it. It's over. Our run is over." And uh, the cop comes up. He's like, "License and registration." And I just, I just sat there. He's like, sir, license and registration. And he had his arm on the, you know, you know how they put their arm on the door mm-hmm. and he's looking in there and I see DD2 fucking 25, whatever, boats and mates, shell back. He's got all these Navy tattoos. And I was like, so when did you cross the equator on that tin can boats? And I just hit him with everything he was. He was a boats and mate. He was on a destroyer and he's a shell back. And he's like, what? You were in the Navy? I said, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a shellback. I fucking beat them polywogs down and all of this. And he's like, he's like, man, I can't give no Navy man boats and made a ticket. And he was like, listen, keep, keep it under 75 out here or, or you, next time they're going to give you a ticket. And he let me go. And then, that was it. And then when we got there, we found out. I mean, all this is in the book, Evolution mm-hmm. of a Cro-Magnon. Like, the story's insane. You would think there's no way that this shit happened. We got on this fucking plane. The parents had hired... They had some big Hollywood big shots. And uh, they hired, like, FBI... And they're just terrified their daughter's hanging well, out they, with you. They, and- they reported that I kidnapped her and I was part mm-hmm. of a cult, stole the car... Because we went to sell it to her friend when he ran the VIN number. That's how they wanted to get us. They put warrants on The level of, like, chaos, though, is insane. insane. Listen, we were cracked up for fucking days, and we went to... That's how the whole shit started. We went to a car dealership in L.A., and then he's, like, goes to run the... He's, like, being a real dickhead to us, and then he's, like, look, I'm only going to offer you... We wanted, like, 10000 and he's, like, I'm only going to give you 5000 for the car. Goes back... Runs the thing. And then, uh, you know, he's back there for a while. And I go back by his door and I hear, all right, Mrs., you know, whatever. I won't say her name, but, you know, what well, I'm going to hold him here and stall till you get here with the police. I go outside. I'm like, this motherfucker just called your mother and the cops are on the way. And she's like, you're always. So he comes out and he's like, we're going to give you the $10,000. I just have to go fill the paperwork out. Goes in the back, and we had been hiding out with the Red Hot Chili Peppers merch girl, which I fucking, we took her money. Like, you know, she still sold crystal meth and crazy shit. We ended up robbing her, and but like, and then, and then, and then I say, Kate, you know, we gotta go. This guy's setting us up. And then we had this like junky moment. You always think you fucking know everything. We're like, I'm like grabbing her, like. Listen, we have to fucking go. And I walked back to the room because he had the title. And then I walked into his office and it was one of these moments. And he was this big, fat, obese dude. And it was one of these moments. I walk in the office and he's leaning back in the chair. And we both looked at the title at the same time. And I just snatched it and fucking punched him. 
and fucking he fell over in his chair. I said, let's go. We fucking run out of the dealership. We get in the car just as her motherfucking parents are rolling up with the cops. High speed. We fucking got the fuck out of there. And you're like, what part of LA are you in? We went up into the hills and I lost them. We went all up into the fucking hills and all these turns. And then I ended up, she was telling me which way to go. And we got back to the house and then we were like, okay, now the shit's on. But we still didn't know that they reported that I was, they said I was this cult in this cult and kidnapped their daughter. It was when we went to the car dealership in Palm Springs and the guy ran the VIN number and he was like, you guys, that just red, red alerted the cops. They're on their way. You guys need to get the fuck out of here. It was Kate's childhood friend. He's like, he told me the deal. Like, there's warrants, fucking all this shit. Mm-hmm. So then we get sold the car for like two ounces of blow, $2,000 in plane tickets to get back to New York. And she told her friend what flight we were on. And then I was like, she didn't tell me that. So we had one ounce in the overhead and one ounce underneath checked in. So the first, she's like, I was like, you didn't tell nobody what flight, right? She's like, no, no, not really. I was like, what do you mean not really? She lived next door to the posts, post serial, Santa Monica, Pacific Coast Highway, mansion stuff. And I was like, she hates me. She's going to fucking snitch on you. We had, And the first thing I said was, we have to do all the blow in the overhead. <laughs> and I just started going into of the Of course, bathroom. like attic, like that's attic the first thing you think of. And I was just sniffing shit up, standing in the middle of the aisles, reading from the Bhagavad Gita. All oh, you motherfuckers are going to hell for eating meat and all this shit. Like out of my mind. you're just insane. Yeah, insane. The, the stewardesses were like, you need to sit down. Or we're going to land this plane and call the police and have you removed. Like, you know, and then I got away at Kennedy Airport and fucking went. They never thought I would have went to pick up my check bag, but I had an ounce in there. So I went and got that and they went outside first to get me while I'm getting my bag. And then when Mm -hmm. I went out with the bag, they went in. Like, we don't know where he is, you know. You just slipped past. And I got out and I went to this... uh, crack burnt out building where everybody free based and i was free basing and then these dudes just came up behind me and fucking slammed me in the head with a pipe woke up head split open all my money everything the weed the fucking uh, coke gone so i just went to Tompkins square park and it was pouring rain i lost my girlfriend i lost everything i had i had burned bridges nobody would hang out with me because i robbed all these coke dealers that were drug gang members looking to kill me and I just broke down crying I went to the Hare Krishna temple and I said I went in front of the deities and I just started crying uncontrollably and I said if you don't let me stay here I'm gonna die and they let me move in and then I stayed there and started getting back into my physical health, training, cycling. Mm-hmm. I got a job as a bike messenger and then just cl- I climbed out of hell, man. Yeah, it's in, you know, what part of what we kind of skipped over is the whole chapter of you sort of falling under the wing of the bad brains, you know, post post yeah. Navy and all of that and and how, you know, really HR and that crew 
you yeah. know, taught you a lot about life and straightened you out. But then you kind of go on, you backslide again into this yeah. crazy, you know, LA experience well, that then you had to kind of atone for, right? And have your second yeah. kind of bottom with this whole thing. And, you know, we only have like 15 minutes because we, we got to wrap it up. So we can't do like yeah. a three hour exploration of all of this. But I mean, the point <laughs> is pretty made blunt, bluntly clear that you're, you know, not only are you a survivor, you're somebody who has, you know, weathered and experienced, you know, more trauma and abuse and neglect and, you know, everything that gets baked into that, the chaos and the drugs and, and the abusing myself, self-abuse and, and all of that. Right. And you know so what's up with the addiction, man? Of we're, course. we're not dealing with our shit. We're and we can, medicating. you know, you, you, you were able to have enough awareness to understand that when lightning struck a couple times in your life you yeah. you kind of grab the handles of that and yeah. i think that was the first sort of step in pulling you out of your circumstances but you know it wouldn't take a huge leap of faith to see you leading the life that you know one of your brothers is leading yeah you know what i mean and so when you look back on how you've been able to climb out of this and, you know, change your life and develop, you know, PMA, positive mental attitude and achieve all the things that you've been able to achieve, you know, despite circumstances that, you know, by all accounts should have you six feet under by yeah. now or locked up in a cage. Like, how do you, you know, articulate that? Like, what is it and how, you know, what is the message that you're trying to communicate to people out there when you speak at jails or you talk to kids or just anybody who feels stuck or feels like they can't stop drinking or they can't stop doing drugs or their elevator is going down or they're swirling in their version of the chaos that, you know, was the, you know, sort of defining aspect of your everyday existence. I mean, I think the thing that I, you have to, what I call day one, day one has to come and day one has to be like, even after all the crack and everything else, I was still getting high and then, like, you know, started smoking weed again and then it would turn into doing ecstasy pills in the 90 and all this shit. And then I, I finally said, you know what? I had to face the truth and the hard truth was that I'm an addict. And, I, you know, I have, an, I have addiction issues and I needed to have a day one where I could say from this point on, I'm never going to fucking touch any drugs. I'm going to work on myself every day. You know, the bad brains in HR, they were surrounded by a lot of very positive people who were into a lot of metaphysical yoga philosophy and all. So I had a good foundation and, um, I had to fall back on that and, and just, and from my time living as a Hare Krishna and meditating and getting up, I just had to have that day one where you say, this is the day I'm not going to fucking get high anymore. And then it's every day you have. To, and I said that to somebody recently. I go, hey, man, I'm an addict. I'm just choosing not to fucking get high today. I'm going to train for this Ironman. I'm going to I'm going to write. I'm going to do everything I need to do so that today, one day at a time, I choose not to get high. I choose to do the right thing. Everything in life is is based upon, it's the choices we make under pressure to find character. That's the whole thing what McKee says in story mm -hmm. two. Anybody could act like they got their whole shit together when there's no pressure. When the pressure comes, then you see true characters revealed. And, you know, what kind of story do you want to leave for the world about how, you know, 
like my whole thing and, and what I've seen, and I'm writing this book on PMA now. I mean, you know, uh, is is I hope that my story, like I said at the end of the book reading, I go, look, man, I didn't write this book to get pats on the back, sympathy. Oh, you're so strong. None of that shit. I said, I wrote the book and I put my whole story in. Well, McKee wrote in my storybook from him that I had him sign it after class. He goes, always write the truth. And that's what and for I people did. that don't, Robert McKee wrote a book called Story. He's the guy who's sort of known as the king of, you know, how to structure a yeah. screenplay. And he does these seminars. Seminars, three a, days. I've t I did yeah, it twice. Yeah. I took his workshops. He was depicted in the movie adaptation quite, yeah. quite comically. But actually. I had <laughs> a defining moment with him because I've been utilizing uh, what happened to me a a as a kid for the main character. And then I walked up to him after class and he had his little bantering going back and forth. Yeah, true character, you know, characterization. You see these guys with all the fucking tattoos to their eyeballs. Really, they're just marshmallows. And he was talking about me. You know, he's picking on me. Through the right. So after like... I was like the second day I walked up and I was like, you know, I said, Mr. McKee is, you know, everyone's allowed to ask questions. I go, as far as like, you know, a kid that was uh, abused as a child, he stopped me right there and he goes, child abuse is the cliche of the fucking day. It's like writers use it to try to gain sympathy and empathy for characters that are weak, they're thin, and we can give two shits about them. It's not the abuse, it's what we do as a result of it. That's the fucking story. And I was just like, that was when I was like, I have to put everything into this story. To, I can't leave out, as embarrassing as it was that these motherfuckers put their hands on me like that, I had to tell that story. And um, and, and I said at the and end of the And ultimately, that's, that's the path towards you healing it for yourself. Yeah, it anyway. was. Because that's why I always had addiction issues and everything else. It was like these old scars. Every time somebody did some really grimy shit to me, that would whether it was a relationship ending or my band members robbing me, ratting me out, doing fucking grimy shit, these two clowns in the chrome eggs, Harley and fucking Paris... And and I considered Harley especially my friend, and he just kept stabbing me in the fucking back, and I would spiral out of control because it was just ripping those wounds open. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I wrote the entire story and got it off my chest to the world that I was really able to heal. And that's why I wrote that book, because I've gotten thousands and thousands of letters. I correspond with people, emails and fucking all kinds of shit. I just got one today. This dude on Twitter was like, your book helped save my life practically by your example and examples better than precept we have to live it, it, it these days everybody talks shit everyone talks to talk who's walking the walk that's who i look to guys like you guys that you know overcame stuff in their own lives and pushed on to to achieve uh, uh tremendous things in, in in the world i'm not i don't care everybody talks shit out of their ass these days you know, I'm I'm like, I'm looking to see, you know, what actions, how are people living their lives? And that's the example. And that's that's what I try to do, too, is is lead a positive life and show people, you know, no matter what, you can climb out of any hole, you know, no matter how far in the depths of hell you are. And I've been down there. 
I seen crazy shit, mad people murdered in front of me. I mean, shit nobody should ever have to see. But I was willing to like climb out of that and and surround myself by positive people. That's the mm-hmm. other thing is the association we keep. Who are you hanging out with? That's it, man. If, if you hang out with rogues and thieves, you're going to be a rogue and a thief or a fucking junkie or whatever. It's people, places, and things. I never went to the programs, but a lot of the stuff they say is stuff that I just know to follow. People, places, and things, you know... Uh, uh, you know, t- just uh, I'm an addict. I'm choosing not to get high today, you know, and the higher power and all that. I, I utilize all the stuff except, you know, it's like with training. I do it. That's part of my therapy, too. Mm-hmm. I'm not a great Iron Man, uh, but I don't do it to, 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 you know, to brag or anything else. I just do it because it's part of my discipline in my life that and, you know, I raised it's a practice. Yeah. It's not something to check check a box on. And, it's a daily and, practice and for you. Just so people know, uh, a portion of the proceeds of the books is going to help Alexander Owens this year uh, too. I'm racing Kona for him again this oh, you year. Are, you're doing it again? Yeah, oh, because wow. they, you know, unfortunately they found two tumors, uh, one in his back, and it's. You know, it's upsetting to me because I've developed such a love for this for this kid. And his mother is just in runner's world now, Diane Owens, um, because she's been under such stress. She had this autoimmune disease that left her on a ventilator paralyzed. It just, it was some oh, freak no, shit. Man. And then 10 months later, she ran a fucking marathon from learning how to walk and talk. She couldn't even take two steps. Complete. So this family, and Alexander's is just, her son, is four years old now. Uh-huh. So uh, I want to try to help them again. So a lot of the proceeds uh, from I'm turning over whatever I'm, you know, I'm I'm going to raise twenty five thousand dollars. I did fifty thousand last year for. So them. if the, if people are listening and they want to help out, where do they just go? go on my Instagram page at uh, at John Joseph? Yeah, John uh, Joseph Cromag. And there's the link to buy the book or the bundle. You'll see that a portion of those proceeds. And then I'm going to be posting a link uh, if they want to just donate straight and not buy the book uh, to the family. The money doesn't go for any research or anything like that. It's going right to to the family uh, to help with their expenses because it is a lot of expenses involved. Right. You know. All right. Well... Erica just uh, came by and 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 we got to wrap. We got to close yeah, this down because, dude, yeah. I feel like I could I could go for like four more hours. Like we only tapped the surface of yeah. so many of the things I I you know wanted to continue to have the opportunity to talk to you. So to be continued. Yeah, but you know what? Anytime if we're together, wants we should to do really it. Take the book home. You could buy the audio book. It's I'm going to get hours. I was going to pimp it for you, dude. So oh, you don't okay. have to pimp it for yourself. I know. Shameless <laughs> self promotion. Yeah, I know. Sorry. So listen, man, you are a uh, triumph of the human spirit. I love you like a brother. It just warms like my heart. Like a brother. I thought we was brothers. Yeah. Brother from another mother. Yeah. You know, I was after the book event, Julie and I were driving home from downtown and we were talking about you know, the experience and, you know, I was moved by it. And I, I just thought it's so crazy that your life experience couldn't be more dramatically different than mine, but I feel so 
close to you as a friend. Like you're one of my best friends. Yeah, like man. I connect with you on a very deep, intimate level. And yet your life experience, like we don't intersect, like our Venn diagrams, like don't cross until but you know we're we like are. in our fifties. You know? But here so, we are. See, I know. And so that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, you, you carry a very, uh, very heavy and very powerful, uh, positive vibration. Um, you impact a lot of people with your message and you are a true example of selfless service in the world. And, the uh and a testimony to the incredible power of the human spirit to overcome you know any obstacle like you say and it's beautiful to always spend time with you cool and man your beautiful I love it, man. girl erica we're gonna go yeah, eat now erica. oh man and julie pre pre prepared a whole she, meal yeah for she us. blew up the the kitchen for us and we're gonna go eat right now but uh evolution of a crow mag it's the new edition. Second edition. Uh, second edition. Prior to that, there was only, it was a limited run. So there weren't very many copies of this book and out in the world. And people started selling it for $500, yeah, $1,000. So it's out now and you can buy, you can get it on your site. Yeah. Uh, and on Amazon or where do you. the best place to buy it is not, a, you know, you can go to Amazon too, but johnjoseph.merchnow.com and if you get it at that site then a portion of those proceeds will go to benefit alexander owens and children's tumor foundation cool. so that's where i try to send everybody to so that amazon ain't giving up a dime but right. these guys my publishers gonna match whatever i give so that's kind of a cool thing you know you can get some great New York stories and yeah, whatever. the stories are insane, and we only you know basically yeah. tap the surface. Oh of, man, the stories go the on and on and on. And like as somebody who spent hundreds of hours with you, I can tell I could tell everybody who's listening like it just it just doesn't end. Like just when you think like there's no way it could get crazier, yeah. like it gets crazier. So well, you will be entertained, you will be moved, and uh, and and like I said, yeah. you will be inspired. Thank so, you for having me it, again and, and, Let's go and, eat. and inviting me to your house. Now yeah, we're going to shout out on some organic plant-based greatness. You know it, dude. Peace, PMA, Hardy Bowl. You know, I love your wife. She's the only one that calls me Jayananda Das. I know. She calls That's you Jayananda Das. That's my spiritual name. And she, Erica said, why does she? I said, because she's supposed to. That's why I call her Srimati. That's right. Supposed to remind people of their spiritual path. And she always does. That's Keeps right. me on the right path. So you gotta surround yourself she, by good she, people. She does that for me Hell too. Yeah, for I thought we were saying that today. Yeah. Like she's like the sadhu of this of this family, man. She's yeah, an incredible sure. woman. For sure. Thank you for having me. All right, man. Love you, Peace. buddy. Peace. Love you too. Unbelievable, right? My man, JJ, he just never disappoints. I love that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. In fact, I just talked to John on the phone today, like an hour ago. He's currently in Australia, in Cairns, and he's getting ready to race an Ironman this weekend. So please give him a shout out on Twitter at JJ Cromag or on Facebook or on Instagram. He's at John Joseph Cromag on Instagram and wish him luck. And while you're at it, pick up his books, Evolution of a Cro-Magnon and Meet Us for Pussies. A couple announcements before I let you go. Julie and I are going to be in Miami next week. We're throwing a party for the release of her new book, This Cheese is Nuts. And we're doing a live podcast. Super exciting. That's going to be Wednesday, June 14th at Sacred Space Miami from 630 to 10. Uh, if you're in Miami and you would like to attend, there are still tickets available. Go to ConsciousCityGuide.com forward slash This Cheese is Nuts book launch. And I'll put a link up to that in the show notes. 
Uh, while you're at it, pick up This Cheese is Nuts on pre-order. It comes out June 13th. Those pre-orders are important. It means a lot to us if you would uh, click that button and uh, have it delivered on release day. Uh, we have a thunderclap campaign for those who want to help support our book launch. It's basically an online platform that allows you to pledge a social media post. And we sort of crowdsource these and all those posts go live on release day on June 13th. So there's a link up to that as well in the show notes on this episode page. Uh, Plant Power Ireland is coming up July 24 through 31. We're going to this beautiful manor called Ballyvalon. I think that's how you say it, Ballyvalon, on 90 acres in the Irish countryside. We're going to take a group of 35 to 40 people through this extraordinary seven-day process of transformation. Uh, we have a menu designed by Julie, all plant-based, of course. We're going to have intense workshops on nutrition, cooking, uh, relationships, creativity, we're going to eat, we're going to run, we're going to meditate, we're going to do Ayurvedic treatments. It's going to be intense. It's going to be super fun. Really looking forward to it. There's a couple spots still available. So if this sounds like something you would be into, please go to ourplantpowerworld.com for all the information and to sign up. Uh, also, if you go to srimati.com, you can enter to win a free slot on this retreat when you purchase three copies, uh, when you pre-order three copies of This Cheese Is Nuts. All the details about that are on srimati.com. Uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, please check out our Plant Power Meal Planner. We just launched it. We're really proud of it. It is an online service that avails you of thousands of plant-based recipes, unlimited meal plans and grocery lists. Everything's totally personalized and customized based on your goals and your food preferences and your allergies and your time constraints. We have amazing customer support, grocery delivery in 22 metropolitan areas via Instacart. Uh, we're getting great feedback on it. People who have signed up are really enjoying it. All of this is available to you for just $1.90 per week. Really affordable. Uh, if you're interested in that, go to ritual.com and just click on meal planner. You'll see it up there at the top or, or go to meals.richroll.com. Uh, if you would like to support this show and my work, uh, easiest way is to share it with your friends and on social media, leave a review on Apple podcasts or definitely, or, and I should say, and please, if anything, subscribe to the show on app. It, it used to be called iTunes. Now they're calling it Apple podcasts for whatever reason they're doing a rebranding. So I'm supposed to say Apple podcasts, subscribe on Apple podcasts. And also we have a Patreon set up for those of you who would like to support my work financially. And to those of you who have already done that and are continuing to do that, my heart goes out to you. I really greatly appreciate that. If you would like to receive a free short weekly email from me. I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call. It's basically five or six things I came across over the course of the week, products, articles, podcasts, documentaries, a book that I'm reading, uh, things I've enjoyed, things that are inspiring me or things that are educating me in some certain way. And a lot of times these are not things I share on social media. So if you want in on that, again, it's free. You can uh, subscribe to that by just entering your email address on my website. There's plenty of spots for you to do that. Uh, I'm not going to spam you. If you sign up for it, basically you're going to get a, uh, in addition to the roll call, you'll get podcast updates and then you'll get occasional product offers, et cetera. But I'm not going to spam you with any kind of 
nonsense. Uh, also, while you're at richroll.com, we have signed copies of Finding Ultra, of Plant Power Way, of This Cheese is Nuts. If you want a signed copy of that, we got t-shirts, tech tees, all kinds of cool uh, merch and swag. Uh, I want to thank today's sponsors, 22 Days Nutrition, my man Marco. 22 Days is the 100% plant-based, 100% USDA certified organic nutrition solution for you, including products and meal delivery designed to meet the needs of your healthy, active life. For 10% off all products, including the meal delivery and free shipping, visit 22daysnutrition.com forward slash richroll and use the promo code richroll at checkout. Again, you can also get these products at Target, target target.com, and the Ritual coupon code also works there as well. And Quip, your one-stop solution for oral health. Buy a Quip toothbrush from $25 and get up to $5 off your first refill pack by visiting getquipquip.com forward slash roll and using promo code roll during checkout. Thank you to everybody who helped produce today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering and production and show notes and helping me with the script and the WordPress page and all of that. Sean Patterson for all his graphic wizardry and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. I'll be back here in a couple days with another episode. I'm really enjoying trying to move up, trying to boost up into this two-episode-a-week routine. Uh, We're getting there. It's not going to be every week, but I'm trying to make this a more regular thing. Let me know uh, if you're enjoying that. Is it too much? Are you enjoying the additional content? Hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, uh, or on Instagram, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Peace. Plants. (laughs) 